the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, fascinating quote from George W. Bush. And then we're joined by Ginny Owen, singer, songwriter, and author of a new book called Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. You are listening to The Common Good. everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Aubrey, uh, little snow flurries today, really cold today. Oh, I, I know I want to be bundled up by the fire today, and it's April. This is not cool. It's this not cool, not but this always happens in spring in Chicago. We forget, but it happens. Yeah, but it shouldn't. <laughs> it shouldn't. The why do we live here? I think ultimately is the question we ask it, ourselves. It is the why do we live here? And then people are like, well, it's going to warm up later in the week. And you're like, it's going to warm up like the 60s. And it's it, end of April. Right. Come on, people. It, we should be in like the 70s and the 80s and going on walks and eating popsicles. Like here, if here's how you know we live in the wrong place. Eating popsicles. I like that. Here's how we know we're <laughs> in the wrong place. Is if, if I could think to myself, what is heaven going to be like yes. one day? You know what it's not going to do in heaven in late April? It's not going to snow. It's not going to snow. <laughs> You're not going to have to turn the heat on in your house in heaven in April. That is it. It's like air conditioning, heat, air conditioning. Oh, it's a heat. nightmare. It's like allergies. Yes, everything. that's what I'm thinking. The allergies. Me and my sons are just like dripping. Kevin doesn't really have allergies, but we do. And it, it's a mess. It's a hot mess. It is. So, Let's all hey, move. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> happy Tuesday. It's a good city, Chicago. Really glad. Yeah. Hey, soon we'll have like our four weeks of great weather where we we're all happy. We love it. We're all like, so. this is the best place ever. Man. And so we're glad that you're with us again on this Tuesday. This story is fascinating. George W. Bush, uh, what was he, the 44th president of the United States? 43rd? Uh, I should know that. Bush 43. Yeah, he's 43rd president of the United States. Wow, I'm impressed that you knew that. Yeah, that if I'm right. And so George W. Bush, he did an interview the other day. It's interesting. He start, I think it's because Donald Trump's not the president anymore that he fe- feels more freedom uh, to talk, I think. That might be true, yeah. And so he opened up about uh, a, one of these really interesting friendships that is kind of in our cultural landscape that he's really good friends with Michelle Obama. I love it. I love it so much. I, I don't think I need to give this background, but in case of the one person there, Barack Obama, the Democrat president, 44th president, right. he took over for Republican George W. Bush. So that's important kind of juxtaposition here. Uh, and George W. Bush and and uh, Michelle Obama have been um, videoed multiple times having these really sweet friendship mm-hmm. moments. Everything from like a hug or do you remember it? I think it was his dad's funeral. I think Someone so, too. He handed her a mint and it like went viral. Yeah, like, yep. he kinda, it's what all like the moms or dads do to their kids. <laughs> like, hand out. And uh, but for some reason, there is like this shock that to people that Michelle Obama and George W. Bush are legitimate friends, that they're friends. And George W. Bush said this it, uh, when asked about how people are shocked when they discover that they're friends. He says, it shocked me. We uh, And then he talks about the whole um, 
part, I believe, where that went viral over a photo of them hugging. He said, uh, we got in the car and I think Barbara or Jenna said, hey, dad, you're trending. The American people were so surprised that Michelle Obama and I could be friends. I think it's a problem that Americans are so polarized in their thinking that they can't imagine a George W. Bush and Michelle Obama being friends. Yeah. Which I think is fascinating. Oh, the cough drop uh, moment was at John McCain's funeral. Oh, John I McCain's see later funeral. On here. Sure, sure. So here's the question. There's three possibilities as to why people are shocked. Right. Because I see this all the time. Some people are like, that's the sweetest friendship. But mm-hmm. even in saying that, you're saying, I'm surprised that they're friends. That's true. Because you're co- you're co- the fact that you're commenting on it means it's it's surprising to you a little right. bit. Right. Yeah, people yeah. don't look at a picture of me and a buddy of mine going, it's so that's sweet. That's so sweet. Look right. at their friendship. Yeah. So there's three options here. Yeah. Right? I think. One... It is a man being good friends with a woman. Yeah. Two, it's a white guy being uh, friends with an African-American woman. Yeah. Three, it's a Republican president being friends with uh, and friendly with a his Democratic, Democratic right. predecessor's wife. Right. Do you think a fourth category could be, this may be a little subtle, but age, like it could be this older man with this younger woman? It could be. I actually think the fourth. I actually think the fourth answer is all of the above. Yeah, the fourth answer is definitely all of the above. Yeah. So which one? I I do think there's one that uh, no pun intended here trumps the rest of them. <laughs> I think it kind of goes above the others. And so I'd be curious which one it is for you because legitimately, if you Google Michelle Obama uh-huh. and George Bush. Whether people are super excited about them being friends, or for some reason I don't know why people would have a problem with it, but if they have a problem with it. The common denominator is surprise. Yeah. Like, whoa, they're yeah. good friends. So what do you think is the number one reason of the ones I've listed for you? I think the number one reason is their political parties. Mm-hmm. I think in this day and age, people are, well, I, I would hope more people are more excited about uh, black folks and white folks crossing that, you know, ethnic barrier and becoming friends. I think we like that. Ideally, we want to see more of that. I hope in this day and age, people are understanding that men and women can be friends without mm-hmm. it being weird. I certainly think we are not okay. It's very hard for us to understand Democrats and Republican being Republicans being friends. One of the things Michelle Obama says in this article is our values are the same. We yeah. disagree on policy, but we don't disagree on humanity. We don't disagree about love and compassion. I think that's true for all of us. I feel like it's, I, I almost want to see them write a book together, have yes. a podcast together, because we all could learn from this relationship. They should just go barnstorming, like the two of them just <laughs> They speaking. really should. I we'll think... get them here. We'll get them here on the Common Good. Now, come on now. That would be wonderful. Uh, I think you're 100% right. I think this is a, this is a picture of the polarization yeah. of our politics. Yes. And I would say that uh, the two most polarizing figures... Uh, in recent politics, I think uh, are President Obama and President Trump. I think certainly that's true. They are true. And so therefore, to have the Republican before President Obama seem to be better friends with the Obamas than the Trumps, I think not just surprises people, angers some people. Uh I do appreciate what she said there. And what he went on to say basically later is like, listen, we don't agree politically. Right. But we don't have to be enemies. We can Ugh. like each other and be fr- This is everything we talk about. Yes. About the problems with politics, yes. meaning like we have to demonize the other people. Like, I do look at this. Every time they show a picture of those two hugging or handing each other mints, I'm like, go. We it's need very inspiring, more of that. is it? We do need more of that. We, we, 
yeah, it's a beautiful picture. It's something we all need to learn how to embrace. This is why I want their book or their podcast, because I want to learn, like, how do they do it? You know what I mean? Like, give us tips on how we can do this as a culture. Because we don't do this well in general. I saw something else this weekend. I'm going to forget what it was this past weekend, where it was yet again uh, somebody doing, I think this is becoming my thing. Like, this is like my, my, the, the thing I want to try to tear down is again, someone was doing an interview and the basic premise of the interview was the other side is my enemy. Mm. And you just want to be like, that doesn't have to be the way it is. It and what I hear George Bush saying is that's not the way it was. Uh, I, I see. I'm going to speak outside of turn a little bit because I'm going to say when he was president, there might be Democrats out there going, that was absolutely right. how it was. <laughs> right. At least per- the perception is it's that. not how I remember it yeah. being. And yeah. Uh, yeah, there's something that even seeing this makes you go, A, maybe there's a little bit of hope. And B, I wish it was more like that still. Oh, I know. Because it just doesn't feel like it. Okay, we'll put that up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If nothing else, Google George W. Bush and Michelle Obama, and you'll uh, you'll put a, it'll put a smile on your face. We'll put it that way. Coming up next, we are going to be joined for two segments by Ginny Owens. Ginny is an award-winning singer-songwriter and the author of a new book called Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Ginny Owens is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, for the next two segments by Ginny Owens. Ginny is an award-winning singer and songwriter. Also, we're going to talk to her about the author. She is the author of a new book coming out called Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Ginny, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. I am so great, Brian. Great to be with both of you guys today. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we dive into all the things we want to talk to you about, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. So uh, I'm Jenny. Nice to meet you guys. <laughs> nice and, to meet uh, you. <laughs> I, um, I grew up, in, I was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. I fell in love with music uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe before I was born, but uh, it was mm. something that I started loving to play uh, piano and, and loving to sing when I was, you know, two, three. Wow. Um, about, yeah, and, and started to write songs, I think, about age seven. Um, wow. And I also lost my eyesight about the time I started loving music, so oh. about three years old. Wow. Um, due to a degenerative eye condition. So, um, but nothing has, you know, my parents were great about kind of saying, you know, do the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. don't let anything stop you. And um, so I ended up in Nashville, uh, went to college there and stayed for a long time. And now um, after a good many years uh, in Nashville doing music and recording and writing and traveling and singing, uh, I still do that. But now I live in New York City. So mm-hmm. I am uh, in my last year of seminary. And having a blast with that and, uh, yeah, and trying trying new things like writing books. That's awesome. Ginny, what is it like being a singer and a songwriter, especially in a pandemic? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, it's different. Uh, it's very different. Um, I think for one thing, you know, as a creative, you tend to feel mm-hmm. uh, deeply what everyone else is feeling. So you, you know, mm. for me, I kind of just get a sense of th- that, ev- that the world is feeling heavy. Yeah. And so I, I write from that place. Um, but also it's meant um, being connected in, uh, to, to friends and fans in a very different way. I did 
uh, during most of the pandemic, I did um, what I called lunch break lives, which were like 15 minutes every day at lunchtime on Facebook um, of just sharing a couple of songs and some words of encouragement. And now we still do those twice a week. Oh, so, that's great. Uh, that's kind of replaced concerts uh, for the moment. But but yeah, it, it was it's being in a pandemic is very a very unique time. I'm honestly very thankful for having my studies to do and yeah. also having the book to write because right. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel too purposeless because mm. of that. But uh, but yeah, it's a, it's been quite a time. So. So as a time for all of us. Yeah. As a singer songwriter, I've always wondered this and I always ask uh, singers when they come on, which do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy the songwriting process or the performing of the song? Do you have a, a preference of those two or is it all part of the same package for you? You know, it is all part of the same package, but I love getting to connect with folks because Usually there is, well, pretty much always there's a an end to the song, like there's a purpose for the song, which is sharing something that I've learned about hope mm. and usually specifically the hope of the gospel. And so uh, to get to share that message with an audience, I mean, I'm, not, I'm always writing with an audience in mind, whether that is, you know, someone who is like me and, you know, uh, you know, women or whether it's uh you know, someone who is, uh, you know, maybe going through a, a challenge, like a some kind of suffering, or whether it's, you know, um, students. Um, you know, I just always am thinking about a, a different audience as I write. So I really love when I then get to share those songs with uh, the folks that I've been thinking about as, I, as the song has come together. Yeah, that's really cool. So, Jenny, you have written a new book, Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Tell us about the new book. Yeah, I'm very excited. I can't believe it's finally done and it has become a real book. Yay! Yay! Uh, well, <laughs> in the thick of the process, you just aren't sure it's going to come together. But um, in a nutshell, Singing in the Dark is about how to cultivate hope and to have joy no matter what challenge we're facing. Mm. Um, so most of us, I would say, have at least two things in common. We know what it is to experience trials and suffering, which in this book I call our darkness. But we also know what it is to love music. And um, so I I try to connect the two. And I I love the idea that, you know, we can can do more, especially um, with the hope of of Christ in our hearts. We can do more than just get through a situation. We can actually find hope and and joy in the midst of it. And that's why I talk about singing, because it's not that we literally sing our way through things, but it's that there's a song in our heart. Mm. Um, I I think about the fact that in our minds, there's always a song on repeat, and that song may not have a melody, but it definitely has words. Mm. And so a lot of times those words are informed by whatever darkness we've experienced. Mm. So for me as a blind person, you know, a lot of times the song on repeat in my head is you don't measure up. You, yeah. you got to find ways to be useful. Wow. But we all have different songs like that. And so um, since we all have that, I, I really I try to walk through some of the songs that play in our minds in this book. Um, and I share a lot of my personal experience with those songs. And then uh, most importantly, we look at the songs from Scripture or a few songs from Scripture and see how they can counteract those negative songs that continue to play on in our minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's about learning to sing of hope and, and, you know, sing a different song than the one most of us have been singing. 
Gotcha. And Janie, as you said, much of your story, a big part of your story is that you've been blind since you were a little girl. I just am wondering, how did how did you process that as a little girl? And then as you got older, how did that help form what your thought about God, maybe in a, in a struggle or, or, you know, maybe something that you feel like I can understand this about God more because of my blindness? Just how did that play it, play itself out through your, kind of the formative years of your life? Yeah, well, I think it did in a couple of ways. Uh, in one sense, when you have a disability of any kind, in general, no matter how independent you are, it, it uh, you're often sort of relegated to the sidelines, right. you know, so you spend a lot of time watching life happen. And because of that, I learned a lot of valuable things. I learned the importance of seeing and hearing and knowing other people, making sure that they feel seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Um and I learned also to to truly find my comfort in the things that matter. I mean that that you know we have to go back. I have to go back and learn that again and again. Right. But I, I remember a very poignant moment when I was in middle school and life was incredibly difficult and bullying was just so intense. Mm. And I remember coming home and my mom saying, you know, Jenny. Jesus is always your best friend, mm. but there are going to be some days that he's your only friend. Wow. And it's okay. Wow. Because you, yeah, because you can trust him because he has been through the worst darkness imaginable Absolutely. for you. So I think that kind of, um, and of course, as a middle schooler, you're like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it sticks with you. And so those words um, sort of resonate in my soul as I continue to go on in life. And and for all of us, that's true because we're all looking for, um, we're all looking for the world to offer us like hope and comfort and reliability in a way that it can't. But our best friend who is always there, he absolutely can. So that's, that's, yeah, that's a lot of my experience. Thank that. you for sharing that. I appreciate that. That other voice is Ginny Owens, uh, award-winning singer, songwriter, also author of Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Ginny, in your book, uh, you do you walk readers through seven songs and two laments from Scripture. So could you just uh, walk us through just a few of those? Sure. Um, so a lot of the things in the book... Uh, a lot of the points of scripture in the book are not actually just literal songs that you would sing mm-hmm. your way through, but some of them are. So, for instance, in the first chapter, we, we kind of go chronologically through the book, and in the first chapter, I talk about Leah, and mm-hmm. um, Leah, of course, was one of the wives of Jacob. Never good to be one of the wives, never good <laughs> to have more than one wife, always, <laughs> never works well. And um, so Leah sings, uh, as it were, she sings these songs to God every time she has a child, um, because her her first songs are are thinking that these children are going to be a means to the end of her husband actually loving her. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, when she has Judah, when he's born, she finally looks to the Lord and realizes these gifts are from him Mm -hmm. uh, because he loves her. And because he sees and knows her, and so she finally sings, this time, I will praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something for all of us to learn in that, because we all tend to think that either God is there to sort of satisfy what we want, Mm -hmm. or um, to just think that somehow, you know, what we want is truly the most important thing, like whatever 
whatever it is that we think will make us happy on this earth is, is really the thing that we have to have. And, and I think uh, the Bible kind of turns that on its head. And we see that for sure in the story of Leah, that she is the most complete when she is uh, resting in God, when she is praising him. But there are other songs, too. Um, I look at the 23rd Psalm, which I know so many of us know, and um, think of it as a song of rest. You know, when we think of the psalmist, um, really any of the biblical writers, we are thinking of people who went through their share of suffering yes. and difficulty and strife and challenge, whether it was, you know, disease and pestilence and, you know, pandemics a lot more often than we face mm-hmm. them, or whether it was war, because that was just what happened in their time, or whether just droughts or famines, all these different things. So when they talk about things like rest and peace, it's, you know, we, they, they know, uh, they know the place of pain and suffering. So they also then can be trusted when they're talking about mm-hmm. peace and rest. So, yeah. So we, and then there's a Psalm about, about lamenting, um, you know, when we've, when we've done wrong and how David beautifully shows us how to do that. So all kinds of different, uh, songs in, in this book. Jenny, so many of us, especially I would say Americans, want to avoid pain and suffering and darkness. I wonder what lessons you've learned from walking into the darkness or leaning into suffering rather than running away from it. Well, I know that God can work uh, in our lives in suffering in a way that is not always as easy for Him to do when everything mm-hmm. is going well for us, mostly because we... We, we sort of quickly um, imagine that we are completely competent and <laughs> that we, are, we have 100% self-confidence and think that we have somehow gotten ourselves uh, to that place of comfort. And yet when we go through suffering, we realize how, how big the world is, how small we are, mm-hmm. and how, um, you know, how we really do not have much control. I mean, that's what we've all seen during the pandemic, yeah. right? We, yeah. we don't. We're not in control, and so to trust in God, to to rest in Him, and and to really um, sense Him, you know, giving us His peace as we cry out to Him, as we read His Word, as we're if, as we reach out to others that that shine His light into our lives. It's it's almost like those practices um, kind of cultivate our relationship with Him, and He. Um, you know, he was quick to, to bring his, his light. And, and then it's, it's almost like we see something that we didn't see before in him. We, we learn more of his character that we didn't know before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a deep sense of um, he can give us himself um, yeah. in the midst of our suffering. And we know we don't have anything that we can bring. Mm. And I think that kind of makes it a, a very fruitful place to to meet with him. Yeah. And Jenny, I'm wondering about your, just your personal life. Was there a turning point in your life uh, that kind of caused you to want to seek God and his word for the hope that you're looking for? What was that kind of turning point in your life? You know, there've been a few. I mean, I think, you know, as we grow there, there are turning points. There was certainly a turning point um, about 10 years ago um, after my mom had um, gone through um, advanced stage breast cancer, mm. and I had because I'm the child that has the job that can be done from anywhere. I, I went <laughs> home to be with her during that time, and um, I remember just on the other side of that time, just feeling the weight of of that 
process that she's doing great now. She's cancer free, praise the Lord. And, and, but on the other side of that, I think that was the beginning of my stirring in, in my heart to know that I wanted to do seminary and wanted to just really wanted to learn, um, more about God's word, more about how to, to share it with others in a way that they could love it as I was coming to love it. Mm. So, yeah, but there have been a few points. Um, the Lord has definitely had to, to reset my brain mm-hmm. or, or just deepen my um, my understanding and, and refocus me multiple times. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there's always there's always growing, That's always right. mm-hmm. more more to do. That's right. Jenny, as a singer-songwriter, I'm curious, how do you experience, how do you personally experience God in worship? Wow. Um, I think my favorite way of experiencing God is when, uh, is is singing together with people. And Mm. as we declare His truth back to Him, Mm. and there's something about uh, just that connection of people uh, in worship and in praise and in prayer, singing uh, to God, um, just you know about who He is and what He's done. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's I think very moving and always the place where um, where I I just sense Him um, probably probably the most probably because music speaks to me so much. Yeah. But but I do think there's something about us us raising our voices together that really makes that a, a special time. Yeah. That's certainly true. Again, Ginny Owens, the author of a new book, Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Uh, Ginny, before we let you go, uh, really thankful for the amount of time you gave us and the generosity of your time that mm-hmm. you've given us. Uh, remind people where they can find you, where they can find your music, the book, just the stuff that you're putting online. Where can where are all the places that people can connect with you? Yeah, it's so uh, my website is JennyOwens.com, so G-I-N-N-Y-O-W-E-N-S.com. Uh, Twitter, as you said, is uh, Twitter.com slash JennyOwens. Uh, Instagram is JennyOwensOfficial, and Facebook <laughs> is JennyOwensMusic. Wonderful. Again, the name so of those are most of the places. That's where they can find you. <laughs> and again, JennyOwens.com. Again, the name of the book, Singing in the Dark, Finding Hope in the Songs of Scripture. Uh, you can find her upcoming worship album, Sing Hope in the Darkness. Ginny, it's great to get to talk to you. Thanks so much for yeah, spending time for with us today. thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, guys. Great to talk with you as well. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Again, that's Ginny Owens, who's joined us here for two segments. Uh, you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. I didn't tell you this yesterday, by the way. I was uh, with somebody over the weekend. I met somebody whose name was Audrey, and I called them Aubrey. <laughs> really? So the thing that I've been worried about doing to you—oh no, it was, she wasn't there. 
Uh, it was a husband of somebody. Uh, she, he was married to someone named Audrey, who I know. But you called her Aubrey. Aubrey. That never happens. That's like the reverse no. of what happens with my name. So I'm actually happy about it. I'm sorry for Audrey, because but I've I'm been, happy. I've been talking to you about how my fear is that I'm going to start calling you Audrey. Right. I've known more Audrey's in my life. Yes. But apparently now you play such a big role. Because yes. we talk to each other every day that now it's flipped. And now I'm going to call all the Audrey's out there Aubrey's. Ha ha, Audrey. <laughs> now you know what I've been feeling my whole life. Well, it's so, fine. I'm just going to call you Ryan, and it's going to be the Audrey and Ryan show. It'll be fine. We'll, we'll make it work. One day a week, it should be that, just to confuse people. <laughs> just to confuse people. Well, we're glad that you are joining us. Someone who's been on the show uh, a couple times now, Karen Swallow Pryor. We're going to need to have her on on a regular basis. She is a genius. Brilliant. A genius. Yes. And she seems to have, like, she's increasingly, so nobody, uh, no, no uh, Christian female kind of author speakers have, like, the the cachet on Twitter of Beth Moore right now. Right. But Karen Swallow Pryor is is getting into Beth Moorean territory. Yeah, she's up there. People <laughs> like, are following her and, and watching what she says and looking for her to be a thought leader. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, someday I want to be known as a thought leader. You're a thought, you're nope, a thought leader, Brian. Don't, don't even try to humor me. I would even disagree with that. Somewhere I, my wife is laughing right I now. I want to, I like the Beth Morian. How'd you say Beth Morian? Beth Morian uh, kind quality. of sphere. Yeah, yes, yes. that's what I want to be. I want to be in the Beth Morian sphere. Yes, you'll get there. So, uh, so Karen Swallow Pryor, also, she's been hit by a bus and lived to tell about it. So there's. I mean, that automatically that. like moves you up the popularity. Yeah, and we ladder. asked her about that when we had her on. She she is oh. surprisingly uh, humorous about her own bus. Bless her heart. <laughs> Bless her heart. If you Google it, it was a really big deal, obviously. Oh, but now horrifying. she now she does joke about it. Anyway, Karen Swallow Pryor, author, teacher, writer. Uh, she wrote at Christianity Today the other day. And I thought, when I saw this, I was like, I want to hear what you have to say as an author. Uh, she said this, reading is up during the pandemic, and that's good for Christians. Hmm. There are spiritual and cul- cultural implications of deep reading. You are an author. Yep. Your third book, fourth book about to come out? Yeah, third book about to come out, and fourth book will come out uh, two years after that. Your fourth book is already being written before your third book comes out? It's already being imagined and it's already sold. So there's plan for it to come out. Maybe you'll be featured in it, Brian. I don't think I will, but I appreciate that. <laughs> As a thought leader, I'll As come to you and I'll ask you what could, you think. Could you put me on like what people are writing on the back? Like, oh, Aubrey's this? And I'll yeah, be like, yeah. it'll say Brian from Thought Leader and, and, and co-host. And I'll just write like, Audrey is a really great. <laughs> done, done and done. We'll already make space for it on the back cover. <laughs> I hold you to that. So you obviously believe deeply in the power of the written word and the power of books. And so I would just love your feedback on what Karen had to write here. Just that uh, it seems like people are reading more during the pandemic, uh, probably because of time. Yeah, that kind of surprised me a little bit because I would think more people are binge watching during the pandemic than reading. So that was interesting to me. Not sure it's an either or. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. It could be be both and. Yeah. Uh, But what do you think about just her general premise as an author that Mm -hmm. the more we're reading and, and what we're reading obviously matters uh, that it's good for Christians, it's good for our culture. What do you think about her general premise here? What I, what I appreciate about Karen Swallow Pryor is she's not just talking about reading, she's actually talking about skilled reading, slow reading, deep mm. reading, thoughtful reading. And I think that's why reading is better for Christians if we're reading skillfully and thoughtfully and um, deeply. She talks about how deep reading stretches and prepares our brains for receptive receptiveness Mm -hmm. of meaning and truth. She talks about how skilled readers are more likely to get better paying jobs 
employers actually say that deficiencies in reading and writing skills are one of their top concerns. Mm. So as I think as we're becoming a more sort of screen dominant, uh, dominant yep. society, yep. we're losing some of the skills that reading gives to us as far as being able to talk about a topic or have a larger vocabulary or um, even process, you know, the way yeah. our brain processes things. And the fact that even employers are concerned about that, that's really interesting. So obviously there's a benefit to reading. I feel yeah. like we all can agree with that. Um, the question is, do we take time to read and That's, do we take time to read well? Yeah, that is the question. Let me ask you really fast. What do you mean by square? What do you think she means by skilled reading? Yeah. Because people I, out there are like, I don't know. What does that I, mean? I tend to read John Grisham novels and oh, other yeah, things. Oh, yeah, John Grisham's great. Right. But I'm not sure that's skilled reading, right. right? Like it's more. That's airplane reading. Right. That is true. Yeah. Airplane, true. which I like a good airplane book, too. Uh, skilled reading. I think what she means is uh, critical reading. Um, so you're reading things that actually you have to think about. Perhaps mm. they challenge you. Perhaps you don't always agree. Or I would even go so far as to say you're reading things that are sort of beyond your um, regular capacity level. And so you're maybe even having to look up words. You're having to uh, learn about history. Oh, they're, yeah, yeah. they're specifically like books written in a context in time or about a historical event. So you're you're reading a story, but you're actually learning some subtext, yeah, yeah. too. So what do you think uh, if we're somebody out there and it's like, you know what? I read Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people read, do. Yeah, yeah. I read yeah. Facebook. That is yeah. the length of my reading. I might get an occasional blog if there's a link that looks interesting to me. I binge watch. I this or that. Yeah. What's the flip side of this? What is the danger of that being our, if not our only diet, our primary diet? Right. I mean, I think that it really does change your brain wiring. I mean, there's science that shows that. It changed how your brain actually takes information and processes information. And so I think that a short attention span is a downfall. I think being able to think deeply, you you lose that. That's yeah. a downfall. I think compassion, because great art and great literature should teach us to have compassion for other people's stories or mm. different ways of life. And so we lose some of that as well. Again, our diet that's only on Twitter. We know this, Brian. We talk about this. It feeds our outrage. Yes. Where literature actually like uh, m- causes your soul to be moved, right? Causes you to think about the things of God or the things of existence. That doesn't happen necessarily right. when you're just consuming things that are online. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm good at this. I'm not sure. I read deeply to preach. Well, then you're reading deeply. I know. I know, but if tomorrow I stopped preaching, I don't know how much of my rhythm is like, I'm going to read. You're going to pick up a classic or something. And I think what an obvious point that we may not have mentioned, but we should, is this then trains you to read scripture deeply. Well, I think that's what Karen Swallow Prayer gets to, that ultimately a love for the written word increases your love for the word. Yes, that's good. That's good. I love this. I hadn't thought about this, but what she says seems somewhat obvious here. She said, So much of the reading we do day in and day out consists of just the facts, even if the facts are wrong. Mm. We consume information, directions, and data, where to go, when to be there, whom to report to, or who to do what, why they did it, and why they should or shouldn't have done so. Truth is not reducible to mere facts, however. For human beings made in the image of God, truth is found in the meaning of things. Human beings are interpretive, meaning-making creatures. And she goes on to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But she's saying that if all you do is read the paper and it's all just facts and data and this and that, you're missing something and you're not going to be able to think critically. So how do we start doing this? Right. Here's the, here's the $64,000 right. question. How, if, you, if someone were like, you know what, I read this, Karen, and, and I, uh, 
I want to get better at it or whatever. You're you're the author in the room. What would you suggest about that? Yeah, I I think I would encourage people just to find a genre of book that you like. So don't judge yourself too harshly if you're not interested in reading like Anna Karenina, right? (laughs) Or like the Brothers K. Like start with books you like Mm -hmm. because that will make you want to read more books. And um, just start reading. Take some time. Take some time to do it. You know, do it. Read before bed. Read. I don't know, on your lunch break. Audiobooks, I feel like, are a great alternative if you don't feel like you have the capacity to sit on the couch and read because your life is busy or your family's running around and you want to be present with them. Get an Audible subscription or audiobooks from the library and listen as you go to and from work. That's good. I love audiobooks. I Actually, this is going to sound real nerdy. I like listening and reading at the same time because somehow I feel like I get the full experience of... Did of you, the book. did you, so you've written books. Did you do the audio book? Like, did you read it? I did. Yep. I read it, which was really, really, really fun. I enjoy doing that quite that's, a bit. That's, do you remember, <laughs> subject right of time, do you remember the Seinfeld episode where George wanted to get an audio book of something he had to read for work and then it was like, the guy sounded just like him? And no, he's, like, stop got it. All <laughs> totally also another story for another day. You said Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. You know? When I was in AP English as a senior in high school, I only got, I had to do a full paper on that book, only bought the Cliff Notes, wrote a 20 page paper. You did that. And got an A. Oh, wow. What a great teacher you had. What a a terrible uh, move on my part. Hopefully, my kids aren't listening now, but that was true. Anyway, reading is important. And uh, I think this is a fascinating article here at Christina Today from Karen Swallow Pryor. Well, coming up next, someone else we enjoy reading, David French. He came out with a new blog post over the weekend at the French Press. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the latest blog post from David French. And then Jay Kim, author of Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. He's going to join us here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. One of the guys that uh, we've had on multiple times here at the Common Good, and I can't wait to have him on again. His name's David French. You've probably know him. I, I personally love to have him on because I really resonate with his mm. the way he um, mixes and thinks about. He's a real political pundit and writes a lot and. And I really resonate with how he is trying to um, take his uh, his political beliefs and his uh, his theology. Uh, he, quite frankly, became very anti-Trump. Uh, and so David French is not well thought of, not only by some Democrats, but by a, a pretty good uh, margin of Republicans these days. Okay. But if you want to know where I land politically, I tend to really resonate with the David Frenches of the world. Yeah. Just going – I'm still conservative, but I see a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> and so how yeah. do you wrestle with that? Yeah. Uh, David French has been on the show multiple times, and we hope to have him on again soon. Uh, but he writes uh, weekly, I believe, at, a, at the French Press, uh, which, again, just a fabulous name. It's a fantastic name. When you get a last name like French, you can come up with all kinds of things. But the French Press is just a solid, solid website. I feel like you and I both have last names that can make for... Good blog names, good well, websites. Well, you especially do from because you can do anything like a play on the word from. Yeah, yeah. From, from Brian. From my mind. <laughs> yeah, from my heart to yours. 
Samson. What Samson's you harder. You, it's got to be like a play on Samson and Delilah, probably, right? Like the cutting the hair of Samson. <laughs> I wasn't going to go. I mean, there. there's no other real like play on Samson. Yeah. The strength of Samson. Or can you play on the beginning, the Sam part, right? Oh, like, interesting. I'd, son of Sam. <laughs> you don't want to go son that's of bad. Sam. No, that's bad. That's not a positive one like, at Yosemite all. Sam. <laughs> Son of Samson. <laughs> That'd be awesome. You know what I would like to do with my blog? I'd like to take one of the worst mass murderers. Murderers of all time and title my blog. And let's go with that's, a book as well. That's with that. get yeah, that's here. not good. Sorry, everyone. I apologize if that triggered anyone. What's, the, what's, your, what's your blog post? Oh, my blog is named after John Wayne Gacy. What? Like, <laughs> That's funny. Oh, our our producer came up with Play It Again, Samson. Oh, Play It Again, Samson, like from Casablanca. Yeah, That's see, good. Debbie is so much more. I'm literally cry- <laughs> crying right now. We're too tired. We're overtired on Tuesday. Son of oh, we got to move on. Play It Again, Samson. Oh, I like that. Little Casablanca nod to everyone. Yeah, instead of the murderer. Yeah. <laughs> Clears the bar. Anyway, David French at the French press. <laughs> like sweating now. <laughs> uh, this is the first time we've ever had the giggles. Woo. Okay. Did David that happen with you and Ian? That's what I it wanted didn't, to know. It didn't. Oh, yeah. He's not fun like me. So David French wrote and he asked this question. The question that dictates how Christians approach culture and politics. And here's the basic question. Does the primary threat to the church come from within or without. Let me just read one of the paragraphs here. And we, we try not to, we try to veer away from just reading articles, but he writes such good stuff that it just is, is worth it's better in his words. No, yeah. Ex- absolutely yeah. right. Uh, he's a great follow on Twitter. I'd encourage you to follow him as well. He wrote this, uh, and that brings me to the church. He's been kind of building up to this. He says, It's become increasingly obvious that one explanation for profoundly different Christian approaches to politics and culture rests with different answers to the following question. Does the primary threat to the church come from within the church or without? Mm. Put differently, does the church stumble and fall primarily because of the sins of the church or because of the cultural and political headwinds directed against the church? So he's not saying it's 100% of one or the other, but what is primary? And so I'd love to know what you think, not just about the premise that he sets up, but maybe even how would you wrestle and answer with some of those questions? Yeah, I mean, it's weird because... I. I do think it's a hard question because certainly there are um, forces at work against the church. And certainly in this stage and day and age, we're seeing some toxic systems outside of the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think part of our Christian faith, especially in evangelicalism, is to look at our own sin. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, that's just part of what we all sort of recognize that we are sinners, but for the grace of God and but for the salvation power of Jesus in our lives. And so I would say primarily the threat comes from the places in our own hearts and souls mm-hmm. and actions and attitudes and behaviors and words where we have not allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to um, have our full submission. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a general good rule of thumb as individuals or as as churches to look in the mirror primarily. Right. right? And right. <clears throat> we've seen lots of problems with the church. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said about going, OK, uh, we here, it's really easy. I think what he's getting at here, and Dan Darling wrote a great kind of 
uh, piece that, that we'll put up on our Facebook page that kind of goes along with this and kind of gives his thoughts on this. It becomes really easy to say, oh, the church is ineffective or the church is struggling because of the big, bad culture out there. If right. we could just get the right politician, if we could just get the right court uh, uh, Supreme Court justices, mm-hmm. if we could just get uh, the right religious freedoms, all of those are important. But I think his point is, you know what? I really think we need to look inward. Right. Like, what are our priorities? Are right. we living to love the Lord with all our heart and to love our neighbor? Are we searching out power? Why are why do we have these church scandals and abuse scandals? Why? And and I think his point is, we need to look within instead of without. But I would suggest, I think you'd agree that that's uh, harder to do. That's a little more oh, painful. So it's I, a lot more easy to point fingers. It's a lot. I mean, this is why Jesus talks about like don't look, don't look at the thing in your brother's eye before you're looking at the plank in your own, right? Yep, like yep. this is sort of the sin that we've had since the dawn of time, since yes. the creation of humanity, that we don't want to look at our own corruption or our own depravity. It's so much easier to look outside of ourselves. No, not you know. Not to be blind to the fact that, of course, sin has impacted structures right. and systems outside of the church. But I do think if we want to see change and we want to see improvement and we want to see God being glorified, God's kingdom come, it starts with the Christian. Yes. Yes. He goes on to say, uh, this is kind of the money phrase from this whole, and I encourage you to go read the entire thing. He says, if the church laments the waywardness of the culture more than it laments the misconduct of the church, then its priorities are exactly wrong. Wow. And I think that's that's the money one right there, because I do think that we often will just point fingers at culture. Again, it's not an either or necessarily here, but I think if the church, I know this will never happen, but if we were perfect at being the church, yeah. the culture is not going to matter. We're, in fact, going to transform we're, the culture. <laughs> right. That's sort of the, the plan, right? The point, yeah. right? And so, but we spend all of our time yelling the culture war stuff mm. about out there. I think French makes a great point. It's not necessarily about who gets elected next or what, you know, what court case happens here or what's mm. going on with whatever around us, all of which are important still. But we need to look inward and go, okay, are we doing what we've been called to do? Yeah, That's let's a great start article. by looking inward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, Jay Kim, author of Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age. Jay's going to join us next. Uh, I'm Brian Fromm, joined by Aubrey, son of Samson. That's apparently what we land <laughs> oh, on. No. That one's going to stick. You're listening oh, to no. The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today, and uh, we're thrilled to be joined by the lead pastor of teaching at Westgate Church uh, and the teaching pastor at Vintage Church, also the co-host of the Regeneration Podcast. For our time, we're going to talk about his new book, Analog Church: Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. That is Jay Kim. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be on with you guys. We're really thrilled to have so you. So glad on to with have us. you. Uh, and Jay, before we jump into your book, which I just realized I misspoke, it was released right at the beginning of the pandemic, which is fascinating. Uh, before we wow. dive into your book, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Like I, uh, like you guys said, my name is Jay. I'm a pastor um, in San Jose, California, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And I've been here my entire life. And uh, currently I pastor at Westgate Church, which is 
um, you know, a, a somewhat large sort of multi-site church here in Silicon Valley. And then I also have a teaching pastor, sort of a teacher in residence role at a church in a sleepy little beach town just nice. 30 minutes away. Oh, that sounds uh, Santa amazing. Cruz. Yeah, it's called Vintage Faith Church. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. I have a deep love for the church uh, and, and still believe in her effect, effectiveness, mm. um, in terms of the, the mission of God in the world. And, uh, yeah, I'm a husband, uh, to my best friend, Jenny, and we've got two little kids, almost six and almost three. So nice. we're just in the throes of it. <laughs> Jay, I love the title of your book, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. I feel like this has to be such a prophetic word for such a time as this. What kind of effect do you see technology having on the church today? That's a great question. Um, the first thing I'll say is I, I, you know, people misunderstand by the title. They think that I'm a, a Luddite and I'm asking <laughs> everyone to throw away their laptops and phones and churn their own butter or something. And, um, I'm not, you know, I'm actually a, a big fan of technology. I, I actually would, would argue that technology, not just digital technology, but technology as a whole is um, amoral, that it doesn't necessarily have an inherent morality, and hmm. rather it's, uh, it's our use or misuse or even abuse of any technology that could make it uh, dangerous. And I think yeah. in terms of the question, how has it affected the church? The reason I wrote the book is because several years ago, I began asking that question in my own context. You know, we were leveraging digital technology in any and every way imaginable for the sake of impact and reach. And, um, and I just started asking, you know, what is this doing to our ecclesiology? How is this forming us? You know, how is it maybe potentially undoing some things that are critically important to what it means to be the church? And I think, you know, having a, a year's worth of just being totally online and on Zoom has taught us that um, digital technologies are a helpful tool, yeah. uh, but they fall short of, of embodied presence with one another. And so that's the point I'm trying to make in the book, that the church is at its essence an embodied reality. Mm. That's uh, And what, as Aubrey said, such a time as this, right? During the pandemic, you're out in California. We're here in Illinois. Both of our states have been pretty slow to open. Uh, and so I'm wondering just your thoughts, Jay, on the effect going forward of the pandemic and all of us just being online, do you think is going to have on the church? How do you think the church going forward has been changed? Uh, and what are maybe some cautions you have for pastors who are listening right now? Yeah, I'll respond sort of uh, working my way backwards. I think my first caution, my first concern and caution is that, you know, one year is uh, not a long time in the in the large scope scale of things, but it is a long time in terms of formation. You know, mm -hmm. um, psychology tells us that just 21 days of doing something habitually forms it uh, and embeds it as a habit in us. Well, the reality is we have more than 365 straight days, right. really, for most of us yeah. of living almost exclusively online. Yeah. So it's undeniable that that has formed us. It's formed the way we think about what it means to be the church. And so my concern, um, which turns into a caution for church leaders, is that our people and ourselves as church leaders, we might have been formed in this past year uh, to understand the church as a product that can be consumed online. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to do the work 
of rehabituating ourselves and our people to embracing the reality that the church at its essence is not a product to be consumed, whether online or otherwise, but rather the church is a people and more importantly, a family to whom we belong. And the reality is when it comes to family, um, I'm grateful when I travel that I have FaceTime and I can call my kids and my wife and see them on my screen, but it's not enough. You know, I, I long for the day when I can hop on a plane and fly back home and hold them and hug them in my real arms. And so yeah. it is with the church. And I think we have to begin to do that work. Um, but in terms of the hopefulness, you know, I think we viscerally understand this reality today in ways that we didn't a year ago. Right. Being forced to be online for an entire year has, I think, increased our awareness and deepened our longing for the real thing, the analog yeah. thing. And yeah. so I, I would just, I'm very hopeful that people will lean into that reality and uh, find a new, a renewed sense of vigor and longing for the gathered church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Jay, one of the things that we talk about here at the common good a lot is um, having an awe of God. And um, Mm. we talk a lot about God's mystery and God's transcendence. I wonder if you feel like as uh, the church in America, have we begun to move away from that? And if so, how can we kind of get back there? How can we reclaim that again? That's a great question. Great question. Yeah, I think, you know, if you trace back sort of at least in the in, in America and in the Western church as a whole, trace back maybe 30, 40 years to kind of the rise of the evangelical megachurch movement. And I belong to a church like that, yeah. you know, that's of that tradition. And so I'm grateful for so much good that has come from that movement. But one of the tenets of that movement was a, a, a red hot pursuit of relevance. We wanted to make sure that church was relatable um, to people. Um, and, and I don't mean just relatable in its message and in its uh, expression of truth. Uh, that, that's timeless. You know, it has right. to relate to the real lives of people. What I mean is uh, we started pursuing red hot relevance uh, in terms of style, you mm-hmm. know, and in mm-hmm. terms of look and feel. We wanted to look, sound and feel like everything else in culture. And we did that, I believe, at the expense of the gift that the church has always had to offer the world, which is not another product that looks, sounds, and feels like everything else in people's lives, but rather an invitation into a community that leans into transcendence, Mm. into otherness, into a space and an experience and a community that um, exudes a sort of love and belonging and hope and grace that can't be found anywhere else. And I think we need to recapture that. We need to recapture that. And that's hard work uh, and it's intentional work, but I do believe um, that's the path forward for, for the church. Jay Kim is the author of analog church. Why we need real people, places and things in the digital age. Uh, Jay, you wrote a very similar article to your book at the gospel coalition just about a month ago called should online church continue after the pandemic. I'm thinking especially of those churches where you don't have staff who can run an online church or, you know, make it look good or ever or whatever. Would you suggest that online church in those contexts should continue? And what about the big church? Do you think online church should be something that we continue as we come out of this pandemic? 
You know, the first thing I'll say is, is that I, I don't think it's monolithic. So I, I would, um, I'm careful not to, uh, you know, suggest sort of blanket statement suggestions. All churches should mm. sh- shut yeah. down online or all churches should, you know, continue forward with online. I will say I do think that the return to analog, the return to uh, embodied church will be slow. And Mm -hmm. I think it'll be staggered. And I think that that is, um, that's okay. You know, we, we, a part of being the church is to be expansive in our embrace of those who uh, are dealing with this pandemic and all sorts of other issues in life uh, with as much grace as possible. This is not a salvific issue. Yeah. It's not a core tenet of Christianity. You know, it's not heretical to do church online. Right. Um, so I would say because of that, we need to uh, be gracious and kind to one another. So mm-hmm. first and foremost, I, I would say to church leaders, particularly those who um, have, you know, are, are serving and leading in church contexts where maybe they, they don't have a staff that can manage a robust online presence. The first thing I would say is alleviate yourself of the pressure. Mm. I think in the digital age, uh, we have been sucked into this vortex of comparison mm. and it's killing us. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. we are, we're worried and we're insecure because why should anybody listen to me preach when they could click a couple buttons on their phone? or their laptop and listen to Tim Keller or Andy Stanley or Francis Chan or Erwin McManus, the list goes on and on. Like, why would they listen to me? You know, and that has been exacerbated by COVID as uh, all of our people have sort of for an entire year entered essentially the marketplace of online consumeristic church, you know, finding you just click a few buttons and you can find another, another church that has, way more production value than <laughs> right, whatever else. Right. And I would suggest to church leaders, particularly those serving and leading uh, in smaller contexts, listen, God has you where he has you, um, serving and leading the people he has you serving and leading right now for a very particular reason. And I would say with full confidence, you have something to offer your community that the Tim Kellers and Irwin McManuses of the world cannot offer. And that is genuine pastoral leadership to shepherd and guide your people, to know their names and their stories and their faces. Mm. And whatever it takes to do that well, if your people are not ready to come back in droves and you have to continue just streaming on Facebook or YouTube live or whatever, and it's not high production value, it doesn't matter. Do your best. And the reality is the thing that will carry the day is that you will be their pastor, not just a speaker Mm -hmm. or teacher. And at our core as human beings, that's what we all need. It's what we all long for. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift you have to offer your community that nobody else can offer. Mm -hmm. So um, the other thing I will say is even for larger churches, as we think about the future of online church, I do think no matter what, we need to establish a firm and clear hierarchy of hybridity. And what I mean by that is I do believe we are entering a hybrid future, meaning digital and online is not going away. Yeah. Uh, but we need a hierarchy. We need to, and this is a theological issue for me, we need to teach our people and help form and habituate them into the reality that online is um, – it is not a convenience. It is a peripheral option for when you are unable. Mm. 
Mm. But as long okay. as you are able, I would say um, at the top of the hierarchy in terms of our ecclesiology is to do the work of showing up in mm. person, yeah. being with uh, real people in real time and in a real place. Mm. And Jay, just to kind of follow up with that question, I, I you know, there's a lot of folks right now that um, you hear sort of saying, hey, my pastor is XYZ, naming maybe a celebrity pastor that lives across this country from where they're actually in embodied community. Um, for the listener, what's the value of being pastored by a local pastor in a local community? Mm -hmm. You know, the word pastor is an agrarian word. Um, it's actually, it, it, it has to do with shepherding, you know, and uh, that's a, that's a common metaphor, obviously in the Bible. And if you look into it, just even, you know, a little bit, what you realize is that good shepherds, even to this very day, good shepherds, um, their sheep know their voice and their name, yeah. right? Jesus himself talks about that. But actually, a good shepherd also knows their sheep. You know, Jesus' mm -hmm. parable about leaving the 99 to go find the one, just think about what that parable tells us, that in a sea of a 100 sheep, a good shepherd recognizes that one of them is lost. And the reality is I'm super grateful for um, incredible speakers and teachers. They're, they're a blessing to my life as I listen to their podcasts as well. But the reality is they don't know my name. Mm -hmm. yeah. They don't know my story. They don't see me. They literally can't see me over my digital screen right. when I'm watching or listening to them. And that is the gift that your local church pastor has to offer you. And so I would lean into that. And whether whether we know it or not, that is what the human heart needs, you know, real connection, not just to see, but to be seen. Mm -hmm. And the celebrity pastors and the podcasts you listen to, they cannot see you the way yeah. that you need to be seen. That's a good word. Jay, as we got like two minutes left, I, I, I love to ask this question when we have pastors on. As we said, Aubrey and I are both pastors. Uh I, I'll ask this two ways. Are you hopeful for the church as we come out of COVID? And what if you are hopeful, which I assume you are, what is it that makes you hopeful for the uh, kind of the future of the church? I'm very hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful because over the long arc of 2000 years of Christian church history, uh, what I see very clearly is that um, Jesus was right when he said, to Peter that he would build the church upon this rock and that not even the gates of hell would be able to overcome. Amen. And the church, the Christian church has overcome. Um, we've overcome pandemics before. This is not yeah. the first pandemic mm -hmm. that the church has ever been through. Um, to believe that we've never been through anything like this before is an exercise in what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Um, <laughs> and the reality is the church has been through far worse. The church has yeah. been through wars and famines and um, gross injustices and atrocities. And yep. Jesus, you know, has ushered his bride through the darkest valleys. And so I'm hopeful mm. uh, primarily because um, I believe Jesus's words to be true, that not even the gates of hell will prevail. I don't know what the future will look like, mm -hmm. but I do know that God will continue um, to further uh, the kingdom mission through um, the bride of Christ. That's, That's a so good, good word, friend. Again, Jay Kim is a pastor. He's also author of the book we've been talking about, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. We'd encourage you to go pick up that book. Also, the co-host of the Regeneration Podcast. 
Uh, you can learn more about Jay at his website. I love this uh, website title, man. JKimThinks.com. That's JKimThinks.com. <laughs> you can also, at the same name, find him on Twitter, at JKimThinks. Jay, this has been great, man. Thanks so, so much for good. joining us today. Uh, thank you guys so much. It was a real honor. Absolutely. Our pleasure. You're all listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on what is just a depressingly cold Tuesday afternoon. Oh, Hopefully, we've given you some warmth. But, you know, uh, it's just like winter. That's a nice thought. We're the springtime. The Common Good is the springtime in the winter of your April. Okay, we end the show most days with just trying to be an encouragement to try to send people off into the Arctic temperatures that are Chicago April uh, with just something to think about. And this one is one that every time this is not going to be groundbreaking news, but every time I read stuff along these lines, I'm challenged Hmm. because what this guy is going to say here is uh, is not something that I do. So Justin Taylor, uh, it's his blog and it's titled if you use your phone as an alarm clock. But all he's doing here is uh Writing, he, he's copying something Jared Wilson wrote. He, and so Jared Wilson offers this example. He says, like many other fools, I use my phone for my alarm clock. <laughs> Picking up my sense. phone before I've even sat upright or set my foot on the floor used to mean not just turning my alarm off, but quickly and casually checking email, looking at my calendar appointments and obligations for the day, and even scrolling through social media apps. For the longest time, this meant that even if my first task of the morning was time spent reading the Bible... I typically came to God's word with other words already occupying my mind. The Holy Spirit was kind to convict me about whose words take first priority in my day. I still use my phone as my clock, but the very first thing I do after turning off the alarm in the morning before I've even set up is open up one of my Bible apps and ponder whatever the Lord has for me that morning. My substantive Bible study time will come later when I'm more fully awake, but I still want his words to be the first words I hear each day. This practice is not primarily a function of study, though it's usually impossible not to think for a while on the passages I'm encountering in those moments. It is primarily a function of worship. I want my daily thoughts and affections to have their agenda set by God, and I want to bring the spirit of worship with me later when I dive into Bible study more deeply. That's from Jared Wilson's book, Gospel Driven Ministry, an Introduction to the Calling and Work of a Pastor. I've read that many times about... The not having your phone right by your bed, right. not starting your day on Facebook right. or Twitter right. or email that right. it just gets your mind going. Uh, I've read all that stuff and I do it almost every morning uh. and, uh, and, and I don't need to. I don't even wake up to an alarm. So I don't even need it. Oh, you for don't wake up to an alarm. I'm a real early riser. Yeah. And so I yeah. don't. Like Sunday mornings, I set an alarm just out of fear, and I ha- right. it hasn't gone off in probably three years. Wow! <laughs> so it's always actually been a pet me- peeve of mine that you can't turn off your phone and the alarms still work. Like I, mm. I feel like I would love for Apple or whoever, whatever phone you have, to be able to do that because I love to turn my phone off at night. Just helps me sleep knowing I don't have to engage. Mm-hmm. But I am a little paranoid that I won't wake up in time. So I need an alarm, which is in the past, I feel like I've thought to myself, go buy an alarm. <laughs> get an I alarm mean, that block. seems obvious. <laughs> yes. And then I don't know. I just get lazy and I don't do it. It's just hard. I, I get what they're saying. Totally. Like, 
This preach, I would preach this from the pulpit. Right. And like, then what's would, the first thing you grab onto in the yes, morning? Yeah. And, and I probably have preached this, but I certainly would. And then it would be one of those messages that if I were really honest, I'd have to look at my congregation and go, this is one of those times where I'm speaking from a moment of weakness. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. know if you do that. I always tell my people. Oh, I always do. I will often tell them. I rarely say I'm speaking from a spot of strength right, on this one. Right. But, hey, this is a spot of weakness for me. And so. I don't know. Help people. There might be people, and this is what I want you to do. There might be people out there going, I really think you're overselling this. Yeah. I do not think those people probably have not watched The Social Dilemma, which my youngest daughter watched this past weekend oh, for school, by the way. That's cool. And she watched it with Carrie, and I, we even talked about it, and I said, how would it go? And Carrie said she was terrified. Yeah, you have <laughs> said, to watch The Social Dilemma, people. <laughs> I said, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, but what about the person out there who's going, you know what? I like to lay in bed, kind of yeah. cozy, and read what I missed on Twitter. Right. I like to read Facebook. So what's the big deal? I'm not sinning. Uh, what would you say to those people as to maybe, if Jared Wilson's correct, why that's not the best thing for their soul? Right. I do think that is hard because you're technically not sinning. And sometimes I do think we like do the spiritual secular divide too often. So why can't you connect with God while you're reading the news, laying in bed? I think the problem for me is if I start my day scrolling mm-hmm. or what on whatever, then I am immediately sort of giving my power to my phone or giving my devotion to my phone or my distraction to my phone. You know what I mean? Yes. And so it's like all of a sudden I'm outraged or I'm emotional or I'm comparing myself to someone else. or I'm, And I haven't even like gotten out of bed to brush my teeth yet. Yes. I haven't even had coffee yet. Now, I know the realities were in different seasons of life. I think about a mom who's got babies. She mm-hmm. doesn't have the luxury necessarily of waking up and having coffee and being with Jesus and having her Bible study. She's connecting yes. with God in a different way. So I think like let's have grace for ourselves in these moments. But ultimately, the question is, do we want to start our day focused on the Lord or do we want to start our day distracted by the things of this world. And I think one of the things that I most struggle with in this conversation, and I would assume I'm not the only one in this, is that I think once I get on Facebook and Twitter and email, especially, mm-hmm. my mind clicks on. Yes. And now all of a sudden I'm in productive mode. Even though I might go downstairs and just watch the Today Show for a little while or watch yeah. Sports Center or something until my kids get up, I'm still, the second that I engage on any of those platforms, especially email, but also Facebook, Twitter, I am now, like, running. I'm into my day. Yes. And that's not good for me. Yeah. And it's also not good for my soul because, you know what's hard to do when you're already running? Slow down and read your Bible. Stop and and be with Jesus. Right. Exactly. Right. It's so true. That becomes super difficult. And so, I don't know. You might be out there going, hey, you've talked about this before and you've said you don't do this well. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Now's the time, Brian. Okay, what are you going to do? I feel like you need to get an alarm clock. Here's A, I just told you I don't wake up to an alarm. Oh, and so B, you don't even need it. But B, next to my phone is an alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> like, so you already have the solution. I do. My my struggle in this is not the alarm. Like I yeah, don't have yeah, yeah. the takeaway yeah. of like, well, I need it for my alarm. I don't even set it six days a week. Yeah. And I just told you on the seventh, I never it never goes off. Can you put your phone like? Can you give it to Carrie, or can you put it someplace downstairs, or something like that, so it's not right by your bed? I'm not giving my. Phone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I can put it downstairs. Here's the other deal. I, I, why am I? This has turned into counseling for me. <laughs> I it also, has, it's also usually the last thing I look at before I turn my light out and go to bed. Yeah, that's how Kevin is too. He lays 
in bed and yeah. just sort of scroll, scrolls. I can't do that. Uh, otherwise, it keeps me awake. That's what most people say. Those, yeah. That doesn't happen to me. Yeah, it puts you to sleep. All right, maybe I'll start texting Kevin. We'll just you guys could just chat all night. It'll be fun. You, you looking at your phone, man? <laughs> Me too, man. Let's hold each other accountable, dude. <laughs> hey, so here, we'll end the show this way on a positive note. Yes, The positive. person who's going, all right, I'm going to put my phone away. Yes. I still don't know what to do. I don't know how to then to start my day. Give them one takeaway and on uh, some encouragement about how to start their day. Well, if we're the saying not grab your, don't have your phones, and I would have your Bible right by your bed or a devotional book right by your bed. And if you're starting for the very first time, start small. Grab one of those, you know, devotions. Do devotional books that you can do it real quick and easy. Open it up and read and just have like a refreshing morning. What I like to do is before I turn on my phone, go downstairs, read my Bible, have my coffee, write in my journal, and then turn on my phone and start my day. Obviously, it doesn't always happen. That's, right. That's sort of an ideal world. But I, uh, yeah, make God your priority. You will not regret it. That is good. And I can't tell you, this will be a segment for another day. I'm the world's worst journaler. So I just gave up. Remember Wheaton, you'd be like, if I really love Jesus, I'm going to journal. <laughs> yeah, Wheaton journaling felt very like significant like, and important. I have like a hundred half-filled journals <laughs> that end with, I feel guilty that I can't journal. No, not everyone <laughs> needs to journal. I did learn that as well. But I think that's a good word about how to get your day off to the right start. Uh, not as like, you know, a lot of us, we just think like, this is what I have to do. No, no, that's this is a wonderful way to start your yeah. day. So yeah. put those phones away and uh, and see how it goes. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. Uh, we hope that you join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.